The story is told of a little girl who was placed in an orphanage in her earliest days of life. And as she grew up, she became unruly and difficult to deal with. She was obstinate and was often unruly. One day, someone reported to the director of the orphanage that the little girl had written some things on pieces of paper and had taken those out to a tree and had hung them on the tree. And so thinking this might be an opportunity to have the little girl taken out of the orphanage and put somewhere else where they would deal with a mental difficulty, the director of the orphanage went out to the tree and got one of the pieces of paper to read it. And on it, it simply said, Whoever finds this, I love you. The director's heart was smitten because she realized that what that little girl needed and what she had missed was love. She had been desperately wanting attention and tried to get it the only way that she knew how. Whoever finds this, I love you. Rejection is one of those experiences that many of us, if not all of us, have had. Rejection is painful. It might be defined as the withholding of affection and love. From some time, at some time, all of us have had that experience, I suppose. But it's especially tragic when it occurs in childhood, because a child is not prepared to deal with rejection. A child is vulnerable and doesn't know how to interpret what he or she is experiencing. But the feeling of rejection is not limited to childhood. Adults struggle with it likewise. Rejection comes through the pain of divorce or the end of a relationship that has been dear. Rejection is sensed in an unhappy marriage when there is not intimacy. Rejection is felt in the loss of a job or the failure to get a desired promotion. Rejection is felt in the terrible feeling that occurs when you're hurting inside and you reach out for somebody's hand and nobody's there. In some context, I would guess that all of us have experienced rejection. Its results are a deep emotional wound that is accompanied by a sense of unworthiness or inferiority. Those who have been rejected often have a sense of loss of esteem. There is confusion about identity. There is anger that wells up, followed by depression. Often rejection leads to withdrawal from others, seclusion, a lack of desire to 
associate with others. And it's merely out of a, a matter of self-defense. People just don't want to be hurt anymore. There's a terrible loneliness and a feeling of not being desirable. Rejection and those feelings that occur around it commonly carries over to one's relationship with God. The reasoning goes something like this. If I can't be acceptable to people, how can I ever be acceptable to God? If I'm not worthy of the affection of others, how can I be worthy of God's affection? And so when we sense rejection coming to us from others, we also apply that in our relationship with God. But child of God, if you are struggling with the feelings of rejection, I have an important message for you today. The message is very simply this. The God that we worship loves. You, personally, deeply, and forever. God never rejects those who come to him humbly. He always receives. He is slow to anger and quick to restore. And we can be grateful that his affection does not depend upon our performance, our personality, or our proficiency. Would you open your Bible, please, to 1 John chapter 4, where we read a wonderful statement about the love of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, that is, the satisfying sacrifice for our sins. The God that we worship is a God of love. God's love is comprehensive. Louis Berry Schaefer reminds us that like the words spirit and light, love refers not merely to a peculiar virtue among many which are God's, but that God is himself precisely what love means. Let me quote Schaefer. God has not attained unto love, nor does he by an effort maintain love. It is the structure of his being. He is the unfailing source of all love. As no other attribute, love is the primary motive in God... And to satisfy his love, all creation has been formed. Love is the very nature of God. To love is the essence of what God is. 
That's not all that could be said about God, for there are other attributes as well. But love is the essence of them all. Love is the heart of him who is our creator. Infinite love has always existed with God. It did not begin with creation. In fact, it predates creation. But love has always existed among the persons of the Godhead. In the most appropriate sense, God supremely loves himself. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. The God who is one loves himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is love. So his love did not begin with his creatures, but we can be grateful that his love is shown to his creatures. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are told that before God even created the world, he loved us. Listen to these words. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. In other words, before God ever created in Genesis chapter 1, God looked ahead into time and into creation, and He loved us. And He chose us to be His own, and predestined that we should be His sons. God's love is eternal. But God's love is also free. What that means is that there is nothing in any of us that merits God's love. When God looked into time and space and loved us, he did not choose us because there was something in us that he found desirable or worthy. But he loved us for the mere fact that he loved us. God says that essentially back in the book of Deuteronomy to the people of Israel. In the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, there is an amazing verse that expresses to us this fact about God's love, how free it is. In Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you. Why did God love the people of Israel? Was it because there was something worthy about them? Was it because they were the largest of tribes? No, they were the fewest. And they were as unlovely as all of the rest of the sinful human race. But for his love's sake and his faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham, God delivered them from Egypt and redeemed them. Why has God loved you and me? Is it because there is some intrinsic worth in us, some merit that causes his love to be provoked? Not at all. He loves us for his love's sake. 
He loves us for Jesus' sake. And he loves us as much as he loves Jesus. God's love is sovereign. God's love is unchanging. God's love is comprehensive. But God's love is demonstrative as well. We can talk about God's love and theorize about it, and we can explore it as it's found written in the Bible and and revel in the words that are there. But the wonderful truth is that God has demonstrated his love, not just told us about it. God has demonstrated his love in a number of ways. In the first place, he has demonstrated it in the cross of his Son, as we've read here in 1 John. This is love, that God loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice that satisfied God for our sins. That's love. Chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 John It says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. God's love is demonstrated. Demonstrated at the cross of Calvary. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is demonstrated. There is no one who can say that God doesn't love me. No one can say that because God has demonstrated just the opposite. Dr. Lehman Strauss has written some words to this point when he writes, There never has been a man in all the world who ever knew anything experientially about the love of God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary. There is no word in all of human language for that kind of love. The soul of man is so precious to God that he could not stop at any cost to have it for himself, going even to the extent of self-sacrifice. Man may hate God, curse him, deny him, and defy him. Still he pursues the vilest enemy in order that he might do him good. This is God. For he is the God of love. Not only do as we behold the cross and God's sacrifice thereon can we perceive his love. To know God in Christ on the cross is to know intuitively divine love in its greatest and highest expression. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself is the acme, the highest expression and exhibition of love. Dear friend, there is great love in the cross of Calvary. For there God expressed his love for you and me in causing his son to die. Notice it's his son. The sacrifice on the cross of Calvary was not without deep emotion. For just as you parents love your children and desire their health, and their painlessness, and their wholeness, and their happiness. So in an infinitely greater sense, God the Father loves God the Son. And for Him to die on the cross with its shame and its torture, 
was an expression of God's love that you and I can hardly fathom. What a demonstration that God loves you and loves me. As he was willing to allow his son to experience the cross death. As we sang earlier, oh how he loves you and me. That's what the cross is about. God not only demonstrates his love in the cross of his son. He demonstrates his love in the calling of the Christian. Notice again here in 1 John 3 and verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. What John is saying there, see what kind of love this is. It is a kind of love that is foreign to you and to me as human beings. It's a kind of love that surpasses anything that we have known or can experience of ourselves. See what great love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Think of that. We who were the vilest of sinners, we who were the hostile enemy of God, loved so much by Him that He brought us to Himself and named us His children. It is one thing to name one as your child that is pitiful and cries out for your help. If you saw any of the episodes on television regarding the Romanian orphans, you probably wept as I did. Little babies born into the world, many of them with AIDS because of the medical conditions in Romania. Unwanted, warehoused, in large units, some of them caged, sometimes two or three to a bed, not properly cared for, without adequate food and clothing. Our hearts naturally turn to children like that. And what a response it brought from the American people. Scores of these children have been adopted and many uh, are still in the process of being adopted. Americans desiring to reach out to these pitiful children, to call them their own, because their hearts want to share with them what they have. But dear friend, God's love surpasses that. That can't even be compared to the love of a God who looked down upon a race of human beings that spat upon him, that cursed him, that raised a hostile fist in his face. And yet God chose to love. And he reached down and redeemed through the cross of his son. And he gave us the name children of God. So that we share all that is God's. We have access to our Father. And any time that we desire, we can come right into his presence and speak with him directly regarding our heart's desires and, and concerns. We inherit his kingdom. 
We will one day bear his very likeness in our moral beings and in our physical bodies, which will be glorified and made like Christ's. Children of God, he calls us. What love there is in that. And that's why John exclaims, what a foreign, what a different, what a great love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are, he says. That's just what we are. I hope that's something that that bridges the gap in your life between how you feel about others rejecting you and God. Because, you see, God doesn't reject you. God had every right to reject us, but he chose not to. Instead, he loves us. I would pray today, and I have prayed, that the wound of rejection that some of you are bearing might begin to be healed by a realization of the deep love that your Heavenly Father has for you. That somehow you could understand that he does not turn his back on you, ever. And he accepts you with all of your shortcomings and all of your failings. As we said last week in that Gaither chorus, quoting it, he who knows you best loves you the most. God persistently loves you. No matter how far you may stray from him, he will follow you to bring you back as his child. God permanently loves you. You may say things to him at times that hurt the heart of your Heavenly Father. There may be attitudes that you harbor in your heart from time to time that were he some other kind of God would cause him to change in his attitude toward you. But his love is not only persistent, it's permanent. God pursues you and he pleads. He disciplines and he directs. He waits and he welcomes. He receives you. He is slow to anger. He is quick to restore and to forgive. And so if there is any feeling inside of your heart today as a child of God that he rejects you, then understand that those feelings that you have are lies. Perhaps lies that you have sold to yourself because of emotional wounds from your past. Or perhaps lies that Satan has whispered in your ear, but lies nonetheless because God does not reject you. Rely on that truth. Believe what God says about himself and about you. I pray that you might today feel his acceptance of you in Christ. But still many of us struggle with feelings of rejections and we ask questions like, why don't other people accept me? 
One possible answer to that is that you may have the wrong perception of how people feel about you. You may misunderstand how people actually feel toward you. They don't reject you at all. Another possibility is that they back off from you because you may be overbearing. You may be too demanding. You may be unreasonable in your expectations of others to yourself. And if that's the case, then you need to change the way that that you feel toward others so that they then will be able to change how they feel toward you. The fact is that you and I can't control how others choose to treat us. There will be some people in life who will reject you simply because that is their personality, their bent, and their own hurt. We cannot control how others choose to treat us but we can control how we choose to treat them. The greater question than why do people reject me is this. How can I demonstrate God's love to others? For you see, as children of God, God gives us the capacity and the command to love others. For we are sometimes guilty of giving others a message of rejection. God tells us, on the other hand, that we are to love just as He has loved us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The greater question is, how can I demonstrate the love of God to someone else. For my God, my Father, who calls me his child, is love. And he calls upon me to convey his love to others. How can I do that? We've talked quite a bit around here about something that we call cultural keys. Means by which we as individuals or as groups of people within our church can get together and demonstrate God's love to people out there beyond our walls. These become cultural keys, you see, that unlock the hearts of people who are without Christ. In our world today, the message we have lacks credibility unless it is seen, that is, the credibility is seen and proven in us. How can we demonstrate the love of God to others? This last week I was visiting someone in one of the nursing homes in our area. As I walked down this long hallway, there were people in their 70s and 80s and maybe 90s who were seated all over the place in wheelchairs and in chairs by themselves. Some of them may have family that come and visit them and bring some cheer, but many of them have been rejected 
Family comes only when it's mandatory or expected. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was someone or were there, there was some flock within our church or some group of people who would get together and say, you know, we're burdened for people like that. And we want to go to a nursing home. We're going to go once a week or we're going to go once a month and we're going to ask for those people who have no one to come and see them. And we're going to become their family. And we're going to let them see the love of Jesus Christ in us. How can we demonstrate the love of God? It's a man named Joe who lives here in the Twin Cities. God has saved Joe out of a life practicing homosexuality. He is gaining victory over that lifestyle that captured him for a number of years. But because of the way that he chose to live, Joe is suffering from AIDS. At the present time, he's in remission, but he's had some close calls with death already. Recently, Joe wrote a few words that described an experience that he had. I thought it would be appropriate to share this with you this morning. He says, I am hurt and frustrated by the cheap platitudes and cliches well-meaning Christians sometimes throw my way these days. The verse that says, God works all things together for good to those who are loved and called according to his purpose does not necessarily encourage me in my darkest hour. It is true, and there are times when I can hear it and hold on to it. Yet a Bible verse thrown your way in the midst of suffering is not a substitute for a hand or a hug or a tear. Did you hear what he said? That was a great statement. It may be truth, he says, but when we in the church use it to distance ourselves from another's pain, it wounds rather than brings healing. What an insight. For the temptation is present with all of us at times to throw out a Bible verse at somebody and use that really to distance ourselves from them rather than to enter into their suffering. He says that doesn't bring healing. He says it implies if only I were more spiritual or trusted God more, I wouldn't be sick or struggling. That may be true, but trusting God doesn't mean I won't feel pain or sorrow. Christ's tears in the garden tell us that. What I need is someone to listen to my cry of anguish. I need to experience the love and mercy of Christ in the form of a friend. I remember once when I was sick and in the hospital, my pastor came to visit me. He didn't pump me full of Bible verses and shake my hand and leave pleased with himself and content that he had served God. No, 
He knelt by my bed and told me that I was important to him and important to the church. Here was a man who had preached four times that day and then stopped to see me on his way home from church. It was late. I was really tired, and he didn't want to keep me awake. I just turned off my light when he knocked. He prayed with me. It was not a big thing, but it felt big to me. It said several things to me. It said, I love you. I care. I am here, and you are not in this alone. You are important to me, and this hurts me too. It was comforting to know that in some small way, seeing me in my pain hurt him. His simple love opened a door for me to feel the love of God. When he left, I felt the presence of God very strongly. The pillow felt softer. The air smelled sweeter. And it seemed as if for a night my room had become some other place. I felt as if I was held in the very arms of God. All worry, sorrow, and fear slipped away, and I slept peacefully, aware of God's great and tender love for me. Love, honestly and simply expressed, is the key that can open the hardest heart to the overwhelming, healing love of the Father. That is our task and our calling. You know what we need to repent of, many of us? It's the attitude that says, I want somebody to meet my needs. The me first kind of an attitude keeps us from experiencing the reality of God in our lives. Do you remember hearing about Wanda Holloway a few weeks ago? Wanda Holloway has a 13-year-old daughter. Her 13-year-old daughter was competing with a 13-year-old friend in their school in uh, Channel View, Texas, for a cheerleading position. Wanda was jealous for her daughter because her daughter's friend had several times beaten her daughter in various positions in the school and otherwise. And so Wanda contracted for someone to kill her daughter's friend's mother. Believing that if this friend's mother was killed, the, the friend of her daughter would be so shattered she wouldn't even try out for cheerleading. Talk about a me-first attitude. And Wanda went to church. And her daughter went to a Christian school until she got into high school. We look at someone like Wanda and we despise that kind of greedy selfishness. And we say, how could a person possibly do that? But all that really is is a further extension of the me-first attitude that all of us struggle with. She just took it a little further than most of us are willing to do. A me-first attitude absolutely destroys our ability to know God's presence in our lives. When we humble ourselves and we say, Oh God, to whom can I show your love? 
Where is another Joe? Where is another person in the nursing home? Lord, where is that child that needs someone to love them? Every day, God would open doors for you and for me to be avenues of his love to others. As we start every day, let's say to him, Father, you are love, and I am your child. Show me today how to love. And show me whom to love for Jesus' sake. Let's bow together. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I pray that you will cause us not only to enjoy your love, but to grow in it. And to grow in it not merely in knowledge, but in demonstration of it to others. I pray that your love would heal some of us who are wounded by rejection still today, that your love would also flow through us to heal others. May we be lovers as you love, and love others through us, we pray. Amen.